Amen. If you got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 25. Turn to Exodus chapter 25. This morning, um, I want to spend a little time, again, diving in these obscure passages, passages that maybe you don't highlight as the, as the passages that you are really excited about reading during your, uh, during your yearly Bible uh, survey, but these are passages that teach us much about God and much about his church, and so we are unpeeling back the layers or peeling back the layers and and peeling back peeling away the mystery of these passages and and getting into some 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 substance for us in terms of what is God saying to us in passages like this this morning we're going to talk about the tabernacle we're going to actually spend two weeks talking about the tabernacle and as I think about the tabernacle the the one of the things that comes to mind for me is the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta Georgia me and, my, me and my family, you guys are probably aware, uh, um, Pastor Deanport shared it last week, but we took a little quick vacation. It wasn't really a vacation. I had some things going on, some work, um, or really more so some soul care for me um, with, with a group of pastors and planters, and my wife and family went with me, and so we got a time, uh, chance to hang out together, and, and I was going to pick up wings because that's what I do. I pick up wings and I eat them. And so I was on my way to pick up wings um, at, on, on the Friday night. Amen. I see I had I, I got a witness in here. On a Friday night um, as I was heading back to the hotel and I and the wing place took me by the Mercedes, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And so I got a chance to see the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It's the home of the Atlanta Falcons, the NFL football team. And it is it was recently constructed. It is magnificent. It is unbelievable to behold. I got a chance to drive right by it on the way to Wingstop. And and as I'm driving by this building, two things happened to me. One, I was in astonishment at 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 just how massive it was and how beautiful it was and the intricacies and the details that were involved in its construction. It's really a sight to behold. But the other thing that happened to me is immediate praise to God. Because as I begin to look at this marvel and look at this wonder, I begin to think to myself, how amazing is God that he could create men and women to to, to engineer and architect such such a marvelous marvel of human invention? It was amazing to me. And I think in some ways what's happening in chapter 25 of Exodus should give us a similar marvel as we think about the intricacies and the details and, the, and, and what God is doing in terms of constructing his dwelling place amongst his people. After the worship service in Exodus 24 that, that leads to a covenant where Israel, um, a covenant confirmation for Israel and God, verse 15 of chapter four, 24, Moses goes up. Again, to Mount Sinai, the, the, the God's mountain, if you will. This is where God has been speaking to Moses. And Moses goes up to the mountain and he waits for God to speak. And on the seventh day, out of the midst of the cloud, God begins to consult Moses on his latest creative work. I find it very, very fascinating that God creates in six, rests on seven. But with his covenant, Moses hears nothing on six. And on the seventh, God begins a new creative work, his dwelling place, his tabernacle. I want to spend, again, two weeks talking about the tabernacle. Today, I want to look at the inside of it. 
But before I look at the inside of it, let's, I want to ask you a question. What do you think God would start with in this divine architectural project? What do you think that the Lord will place his emphasis in creating this space for worship and this space for his dwelling? Well, in verse 1 and 2, we get the answer. The offering plate. Can't build anything without money. You guys are like, I knew it. I knew he was setting us up for the lighthouse. He was probably been sitting on this sermon for 15 weeks waiting on, waiting on this sermon so he could preach about fun. That's not what I'm doing, all right? You can calm down and you don't have to hide your wallets. You can, put them, you can bring them back out. Verse 2 in, in chapter 25, it says, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goats, hair, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins. Goats skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, ephod, and for the ephod, and for the breastpiece, and, and, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." There's a couple of things I want to pause and talk about as we look at God passing or, or, or instructing Moses to pass the offering plate. First of all, the offering is for God. Verse 2 says that they take for me a contribution. The offering is for God. Take for me. I get it. Money, without a doubt, has been used by the greedy and the crooked to exploit the people of God in every generation and in every region where Christianity has been named and found and known. I get it. And it, go, and it goes without debate that we have far too many preachers on TV and online that seem to know no other song but send me a donation, sow me a seed, support this ministry with a financial contribution. Um, uh, we, we would say back in the day, they beg, they beg worse than keep sweat. Some of y'all don't know keep sweat, and that's okay. You can look them up when you get on. And I, and I, I get it. We, we continue to see too many shepherds. People that are designated as shepherds, that, that have the title of pastor, fleecing sheep and using the call for generosity as a tool for selfish gain. I get all of that. But please do not miss or lose sight of this truth. God uses the money he assigns us and the possessions he assigns us to show forth his glory and aid in the advancement of his work. The money God commands Moses to receive is for God, not for Moses. It is an act of worship that God will use in order to build his tabernacle for his glory. We don't like people getting into our purses and our wallets, but we must be confronted with the reality that God, in fact, does get into our purses in our wallets. 
And if we are to be people of the word, then we also must be confronted with the reality that the Bible has over 400 passages that speak directly about money and stewardship. And none of those passages encourage you to get as much money as humanly possible and then spend it all on yourself. In fact, how we see money is oftentimes a reflection of how we see God and the life that we are called to live before God. When we hoard money and when we keep it mainly to ourselves and for ourselves, it unveils an attitude that that says this money belongs ultimately to me. The same can be said about our time and our bodies and our talents and our energy. It unveils an attitude of self-centeredness and selfishness. It unveils an attitude of worship towards the possessions that I've laid claim to instead of the God who has laid claim to me. This morning, what declaration would your wallet make for you? What declaration would your budget make for you? Again, I get it. Are there some greedy wolves out there robbing the sheep blind? Without question, but don't let the greed of others serve as cover for your own greediness. Don't let the greed of others serve as cover for your own selfishness or your own lack of confidence in God to provide for you when you are generous. Sometimes we allow the sins of others to serve as cover for our struggles. Those people are so greedy. That's why I never give anything to the church because those people are, those people are greedy out there. What does that have to do with you being selfish? And don't let your attention on thieves cause you to miss out on the opportunities that God gives you to participate in the work that he is doing in the world with both our time, our talent, and our treasure. So the offering is for God. But here's another point about this collection. The offering is from God. You may recall when Israel was delivered by God from Egypt, God caused Egypt to hand them over spoils. It said in Exodus chapter 12 that the the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians gave them whatever they asked for. So what God was asking for in the the construction of his tabernacle was, in fact, what God had already blessed Israel with. He was asking for what belonged to him. Christian stewardship begins with this simple truth. Everything I have and everything that I am belongs to God. In fact, listen, God would be well within his rights to take it all from us. It's his. He can take it back anytime he wants to. And he can use it however he pleases. But because he is gracious, because he is merciful, God places it in the hands of you and I and grants us opportunities to use it as an act of worship back unto him. One preacher puts it this way. He says, it's like a father who gives children his money to buy him a birthday present. 
And when he opens the gift, he is getting back his own. But the giving of the gift is significant for their relationship. It's not about the money or where it came from. It's about the affection that the children have for their father. This is the way God usually works. God gives us an opportunity to participate. Although we can never repay him, we can offer ourselves for his service, end quote. Pay attention to even how the Lord asks for it. Verse 2, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Even though this offering comes from God's own riches, he doesn't force it from them. He gives them an opportunity to participate in this act of worship from their hearts. As Christians, our lives should reflect a posture of worship through generosity and a posture of kingdom building through generosity and a posture of love towards our neighbors through generosity and a posture of gospel advancement and mission through generosity. Now, how much is not for me to speak on? That is between you and God. But if your life rarely displays any rhythms of generosity, then you must begin to ask yourself, what in my life needs to change or be rearranged in order for me to be generous with what the Lord has given me? Let me say this again. How much is between you and God? But if your life does not reflect a rhythm of generosity, then you must ask yourself what needs to change or be rearranged in order for it to do so. Some of us will be operating in the will of God with a generosity that is reflected in $50 a month. And that's, and that's what we'll give him, and it will be pleasing unto the Lord. And there will be others of us among us who, 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 who will be in the will of God or who won't even be in the will of God with $5,000 a month. Probably ain't me, but there are some that can give more, more than that. How much is not the concern? That's between you and God. Regular rhythms of generosity, not just in the house of God and towards the church of God, but regular, regular rhythms of generosity outside of it, towards the people you engage and encounter. That is a mark of the Christian life. So the Lord doesn't force Israel to give of the possessions that he has richly supplied them. Nevertheless, later on in the story, we find out that not only do they give, but they give so much that Moses has to wave them off and let them know that he has enough for the work. Now, how in the world is that possible? Well, it's possible because in that moment, they are giving to the work of God from the abundance of a heart that is grateful for all he has given them. When our hearts truly feel his generosity towards us, we become vessels of generosity towards others. So we turn our attention to the tabernacle in verse 9. Again, we're going to spend this week going into the inside. Verse 9, it says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of his furniture, so you shall make it. Some scholars believe that here on God's mountain, Moses was either given a literal 3D scaled down model or a blueprint. 
But one thing is certain, there aren't many building projects in the history of creation where God himself is named the chief architect. This space was to serve as a temple for a traveling nation, a nation on the move, a dwelling place for God that could literally be packed and moved when needed. It was a massive construction, but it was a I'm sorry, it wasn't necessarily a massive construction. In fact, it wasn't even the, the size of a football field, much shorter, in fact. But it was a special construction. It was a meticulously designed construction. Every detail captured. And why was it so detailed? For a few reasons. Number one, because it was a space where God was to be worshipped. God desires our worship. But God also determines our worship. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. He desires our worship, but he also determines our worship. We don't have the luxury of worshiping on our own terms. We must worship on his terms. Otherwise, it ceases being worship. This is how many of us want to worship God. We want to worship God on terms that we set. We want to tell him what is an acceptable offering of our bodies and an acceptable offering of our life and an acceptable offering of our time and our talents. And we also want to tell him when he's asking too much of us, when his guidelines aren't comfortable to us, when we don't like what he is proposing and we consider it not acceptable. However, when we build worship on our terms, we placed our thoughts, and our opinions above God. When we build worship on our terms, we place our thoughts and opinions above God. In other words, we have become the objects of our worship. God, in giving Moses these meticulous details, is establishing that worship ultimately belongs to him. But the the details of the construction are also meticulous because it is a space where God is to be revealed. Every detail articulated by God is speaking something about God. We are learning about God's nature and learning about God's character in the tabernacle. The geometric dimensions that we are reading about are, are perfectly assembled because they reflect one whose nature is perfect. But we also, we also know that these details are meticulous because it is a space where God is to dwell. It's a space for his abode. And you can't put God anywhere. The first element of this tabernacle that God lays out is the Ark of the Covenant. Why would you think that he starts with the Ark? In fact, the Ark is in the, in the very center of the tabernacle. You would think we would almost be like on a tour and we would start from the outside and work our way in. But he starts with the ark because the ark is the most important element in the tabernacle. God starts with the ark because the ark is going to be the place where he will descend to dwell with his people. In fact, the ark is placed in the center of the tabernacle beyond the holy place and behind a curtain in a place called the Holy 
of holies. It was not intended to be regularly visited, in other words. Scripture says that the ark was to be made with acacia wood in verse 10. It says it's to be two cubits and a half um, long, meaning that it's roughly two, two cubits is about a forearm's length. So you're talking about 18 inches, okay? And so two cubits and a half are roughly about four feet long. It's a four-foot long box. Scripture also says that it's to be a cubit and a half its breadth. In other words, a cubit and a half wide, and then a cubit and a half its height. So in other words, this box is about four feet long, three feet wide, and three feet high. It was heavily adorned with gold and um, overlaid with gold, both on the inside and the outside. On the inside, there are a few items that are stored, a, a pot of manna and, a, and, and Aaron's rod and the Ten Commandments. And they were all provided as a reminder to Israel of God's deliverance from Egypt for them. They reminded Israel that the God that they worshiped was the God that delivered them. And therefore, he was, in fact, worthy of that worship. On the outside, there was gold molding all around it, and there were four rings, two on one side and two on the other, made of gold. And each pair of gold rings had a pole of acacia wood with gold overlay going around it. And the poles were used to carry the ark, and these particular poles were never taken out. This was the only piece of furniture, in fact, with these carrying poles that had this specific instruction to never be removed. There were other pieces of furniture that had, had these poles, but this was the only furniture that had the instruction never to remove these poles from the rings. And the answer as to why they were to never be removed was simple. The ark was never to be touched. It was God's dwelling place. It was holy and separated from every other person or thing. In fact, we have this story of King David who orders the ark to be brought up to Jerusalem and, to make a and, and, and in order to make the transport easier for the priests, they decide, not God, they decide that they're going to put the tabernacle or put rather the ark on the uh, ox cart and as they are traveling, the ox stumble. And when the oxen stumble... The ark begins to tilt over, and one of the men, poor man, who was a, a, es escorting the transport, decides to reach out and catch it with his hand. And in an effort to keep it from falling, he reaches out, he grabs it, and he's immediately str stricken dead or struck dead. What do we learn from that story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 about this man? We learn that we do not trifle with the Holy One or the holy things of God. God is not to be toyed with, we learn. Where he dwells is sacred. When you consider this and then you capture the level of seriousness and the gravity of God in his dwelling place, how should you look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19? Where Paul says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. How should we view our own bodies when we understand that they too are places for God's dwelling and that where God dwells is considered holy and sacred 
And heaviness is involved. Gravity is involved in his dwelling place. How should I look at my body? How should I look at what I do with my body? Every Christian who has been purchased by Jesus through his death on a cross have been made a tabernacle of sorts for God to dwell in holiness by his spirit. God dwells in you. So how should that shape how you live? How should that shape how you walk? How should that shape how you talk? How should that shape how you treat one another? What covers this ark? Exodus chapter 25, verse 17, it says, You shall have a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. The mercy seat was the lid of the ark. It was the cover for the ark. And yet, it wasn't just your typical average lid. It was so much more involved than this lid. It was the place that God would come and meet with Israel and extend mercy to Israel through the forgiveness of their sins. You see it in the ark. You see, rather, in the ark was the Ten Commandments and and the reminder of the law that Israel, no matter how hard they tried, they could not perfectly keep. That is what was in the ark, a reminder that they never measured up. So God in his kindness covers that ark with a reminder that they are forgiven, that provision has been made because of the fact that they can never measure up. Once a year on what was called the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come forward and offer a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins and the sins of his household. And, the, and, and then he would follow that up with a sacrifice of a goat for the sins of people, all the people of Israel. And he would sprinkle that blood from those sacrifices on the mercy seat for the atonement of the people. That may seem like overkill in our generation. We're a lot more refined, quote-unquote, and cultured, and our sensibilities are, ew, blood, what is all this about? But it is the way that it is because we are still struggling with the nature of sin and the holiness of God. In other words, we think that this is too much because we still struggle with the nature of sin and the holiness of God. Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sin. In other words, God in his holiness requires justice for sin. Justice that comes only through the shedding of blood. And so every single year, atonement was made through the blood shed by bulls and goats until Christ died. And when Christ died, the cross became the final mercy seat. Christ became the final sacrifice on the mercy seat. And his blood became the final necessary shedding to bring mercy to all of his people. Now we no longer require an offering. Why? Because we've gotten better? No. We no longer require an offering uh, to be made to receive mercy for the forgiveness of sin because that mercy has been given to us through the death of Jesus Christ. And through faith, God now dwells with us by his spirit. As you move out from the holy place, 
And beyond the curtain, or rather the holies, holy of holies, you move into the holy place. There's a table and a lampstand in this holy place. The table was about three feet long and about a foot and a half wide and about two feet high. It, too, was overlaid with gold and had gold molding all around it. And it, too, had four golden rings with two poles made with acacia wood and overlaid with gold that, that were put through the rings and used to carry it, not permanently. Remember, the only, the only furniture that, was per, that had the permanent poles in it was the ark. But the most important element about this table was not its composition, but rather what was on top of the table. The bread, 12 loaves arranged in two stacks representing the 12 tribes of Israel, replaced every single Sabbath by the priest. And this ritual resembled other nations' worship rituals. You see, other nations, other priests of false gods would, would bring food to their gods and set it at a table to consume. That's the difference. You see, they expected their God to consume the bread, and it was intended to show a relationship between the God and his people or her people. It was intended to show a mutual dependence on one another. We'll provide you something that you need, and you provide us something that we need. Israel's God, on the other hand, did not have the bread there for himself. He provided the bread for the priest. And it was intended as a reminder of our relationship with this God, that it is not built on mutual dependence, that there is no I give you something and then in return you give me something because you need something from me and I need something from you. This God says, I need nothing from you, that I provide you with everything you have that I own and possess everything, that I create things from nothing, that I create everything from nothing. And so your relationship is solely dependent on me. Thus, I don't need the bread. You guys can eat it. God was de 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 declaring himself through the table and through the bread as Yahweh Yaira, the provider of sustain, uh, the provider and sustainer of all people and all things. When the people saw the table, they were supposed to remember that God was a holy God, but they were also supposed to remember that he was a gracious God who provided for them. You see, we too are to be reminded of this when we turn to Christ. Because it's in John chapter 6 that we hear Christ declare himself as what? The bread of life. The one who provides for us with, with an eternal provision. He is the bread that never has to be replaced. They replace the showbread every single Sabbath in the tabernacle. But Christ is the bread that never has to be replenished. He is always available for our nourishing and our strengthening. As we look at this table, let me ask you a question. This morning, how are you looking at other tables to provide and to find provision? Are you looking at other tables to find fulfillment? Are you looking at other tables to find satisfaction? 
Maybe a table of substance, drug and alcohol abuse. Maybe a table of relationships, running to and fro. Maybe a table of your job where you're looking for satisfaction through performance and success and and climbing ladders. Maybe a table with your family where if they're not good, you can't be good. Are you looking to Christ for your ultimate provision? Is he the table that you dine from? This table reminds us that we don't find our provision and fulfillment at any other table with any other bread than the table of God with the bread of Christ. Lastly, the last piece of furniture in the room inside the tabernacle is the lampstand. It's a golden lampstand that is directly across from the table with the bread. Lampstand is specially crafted, specially made. Lampstand is about one talent heavy of pure gold. In other words, about 75 pounds. There were seven lamps in all that, was, that, that, that comprised this lampstand, and they were intended to shine on that which was in front of it. There were tools here that were also made with pure gold or from pure gold that were used to, to manage the light on this lampstand? And what did this lampstand represent? That God is light. That God is light. James 1 and 17 says that every good and gift, every good gift rather, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 1 John 1 and 5 says that this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In fact, scripture tells us that the absence of light is, 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 is signifying the removal of God's presence in a space. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, it says of one of the churches, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Meaning that my presence I will remove. Unless you repent. Saints of God, we live in the midst of darkness. Our world is broken, and it is, and it is sinful, and it is harsh, and it is. It is grueling. But here, God is reminding us that the key is to stay with Him, because in Him we will find light. In Him we will find. Direction In him we will find guidance. In him we will find illumination. Again, we're reminded how Jesus fulfills all of the blueprints of the tabernacle because in John chapter 8, verse 12, we hear Jesus declare that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am that light that burns eternally. Look to me, cling to me, and you too will have light. In fact, Jesus says, look to me, cling to me, and not only will you have light, but you will do what? You will become light. For he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we cling to the light, we ourselves become light. Light that's intended to shine, not light that's intended to hide. Light that's intended to shine in dark places. Light that's intended to perform good works. Light, that, light that's intended to love deeply and sacrificially. Light that's intended to be generous with our time and our energy and our talent and our treasure. Light that's intended to be peacemakers in a peaceless world. You know, we're looking on the inside of this magnificent construction. This is a view that we would not normally get. Very few people are allowed inside this space. Even fewer are allowed behind the curtain into the holies of holies. And if you had no Jewish pedigree, you definitely would not see any of this. But it's for that reason that we celebrate verses like Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This moment, this event in history happened immediately after the Savior died. When the Savior was slain, when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross on Calvary's hill. The temple, the curtain temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the curtain that declared that we do not have access here, the curtain that served as a barrier between us and the presence of God was torn in two, signifying that through Christ we now can come to God, that there is no separation, that there are no barriers, that you can come to God, that you can boldly approach the throne of God. Why? Because you're better? No, because Christ is. Because in Christ, we have received direct access to God. And so the tabernacle should not create despair. The, the tabernacle is pointing to one who has created a way for us to reach God. Next week, we'll dive on the outside and take a peek at the outside of this magnificent construction architected by God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we give you the thanks and the praise and the glory and honor. God.